0: Hi, and welcome to the 38th episode of the DCVC Podcast. I'm your host, Akash Pat, and this is a show where I speak to angel investors and venture capitalists investing in tech startups in India. We're rounding up this year with some wonderful guests, and I have one such here with me on the show today. Extremely delighted to have Adit Podar join me, who is the managing partner at Gemba Capital, a firm that backs post-seed stage, highly scalable startups in angel rounds. Prior to Gemba, Adit spent time at Motila Otswal Private Equity and ICICI Bank, where he started his career as a product manager. He's been an investor in some really exciting startups, and we'll hear him speak more to it in the episode. So without further ado, here's Adit. Welcome to the podcast, Adit. We've been meaning to do this for a while, and I'm extremely delighted to have you on the show after a couple of months of trying to plan this out. So first of all, thank you so much for your time and welcome to the DCVC podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Akhash, for
0: having me. Wonderful. So I usually kick off my questions by asking my guests about the how the last eight to nine months have been, you know, we've been through this very horrific year in terms of the pandemic and everything that it's caused. and and we're still in the in the pandemic, uh, so to speak, in spite of things opening up in different parts of the world. Talk to me about your personal experience. How has the pandemic really affected you? How has that affected Gemba Capital? And are there any learnings that you have had with this process that you can share with our listeners?
1: Yes, Akash. So actually, you know, um, the pandemic has impacted all of us in some way or the other. Uh, it did impact us both um, professionally as well as personally. You know uh let me first talk about um professionally so uh we made around 18 investments um you know in the last three years and if i had to kind of bucket these investments into the impact of covid you know almost 30 to 40 percent of the companies uh, actually didn't get so much impacted by COVID because these were either SaaS companies or companies like Airmeet and plum where actually uh, COVID uh, acted as a more uh, tailwind and um, they got um, better uh, in terms of the traction right uh, so uh, uh, 40% of the companies we were not uh, so uh, impacted and then there were some wherein uh, just before COVID they raced around uh, companies like Clear Deco and Hoy Foods so which is a retail company and a cloud kitchen company so, although pandemic did impact their revenues, but uh, because they had money in the bank, it uh, they were able to sail through it, and now they are back at pre-COVID uh, revenue numbers. So, uh, almost 22.5% companies fell uh, fell in that bracket, and there were a couple of them which uh, where uh, the strategy was in place. There were some minor pivots done to to pass through these uh, these tough times. A lot of cost cutting was done and they were able to uh, pull it off. In terms of, uh, there was only one company which couldn't survive the pandemic, which was into consumer lending, where the monies just couldn't come back and the NPS levels shot up. So uh, that was one uh, company which didn't do well. But overall, uh, I think what what the pandemic did was it showed, uh, it separated the men from the boys, right? You know, it separated the strong business models which have feet on their, which, which were running on their own feet, had strong unit economics from com, from those business models which were very, very dependent on, on marketing budgets and spend. So uh, that was a good learning for us as well. And a lot of the leadership capabilities of some of our founders kind of uh, came out during this pandemic, how they handled their companies, their employees and, and things like that. So uh, overall, I think we won more than we lost uh, during the COVID in terms of uh, you know the professional and, and 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 at Kemba capital and uh coming to my uh to personally uh yes it has impacted uh, in a way uh that obviously you know you're meeting less people physically and uh you you are more at home but what uh, the silver lining there is you've got a little bit more time to think about yourself to think about uh things which otherwise you would not probably, you know, uh, give a thought to. So more long-term in nature, more strategic in nature, uh, a little bit caught up on my, on my reading, some bit of mindfulness and things like that, which you can kind of tend to forget in the, in the mundane life and, and, you know, in, in the way you live. So I think, uh, that has been good. Uh, but yeah, obviously I think, uh, overall each one of us have gone through tough times, uh, but, uh, I think there's a lot of learning, which has happened on all fronts.
0: That's fantastic. And one of the things that you mentioned is, you know, you've kind of like won more than you've lost during the pandemic, especially speaking from a Gemba Capital perspective. That to me is very interesting. And speaking to a lot of other uh, VCs as well within the industry, a lot of them come from a very similar sentiment where they've been talking about uh, having more wins uh, than losses during this period. Does that really symbolize something? Are we indicating uh, that this has been a year where in spite of what's happened, in spite of the changes, in spite of how we've all had to adapt, it's kind of been a big year for VC in general. I mean, we're looking at all the trends take India for that matter or take globally, even in the U S can we say that this year has been the year where the venture community is actually won? because they've been a little more cautious. They've been very selective. And at the same time, they've been doubling down on their best performers. So in a way, it kind of gives a fantastic sort of um, snapshot of what the industry today looks like. The fact that it's more resilient, the fact that VCs are a little more thoughtful in terms of where their money is going, does that also give LPs more confidence uh, when they're thinking about deploying capital in the country? So what, wh- where do you stand on that issue? Can we talk about it from a macro perspective and say, it's overall just been a good year? Is that a fair estimation?
1: I feel uh, uh, saying that it's overall been a good year probably will not be the right thing to to use but I think overall it has been a great uh, year for learning and to make a lot of things right which were not going in the right direction. So I think uh, from a directional perspective a lot of companies have benefited. Like for example people started companies started realizing the amount of flab they were uh, uh they had excess flab while they were running their companies and they could very well cut cost by easily five to ten percent in some cases more than that uh, and then once uh you know we go back to the pre-covid levels uh you your margins are going to go back to the norm to the old old margin structure and and that's where you will be much more profitable because you reduce your cost and the cost will not go back to the old uh old cost right so in a way uh, these subtle nuances have happened where businesses have benefited uh, from 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 COVID. You know, look, I know a couple of businesses in in my um, you know family circles wherein uh, they were not so much focused on tech, but now because of COVID, so many of their processes have now got converted into uh, through an RPA, into into a tech process. They've started using SaaS tools. They started understanding what cloud is all about because now they want uh, their employees to work remotely. So all these good things have happened uh, without really, uh, you know, uh, too much of a burden. Yes, uh, having said that, some companies which were directly impacted, like travel and few things which were completely consumer-facing companies, uh, they've gone through the tough times, and I and I hope the uh, the investors have stood by these companies because inherently these are fundamental businesses which will remain right. Uh, Probably some they have readjust themselves uh, in terms of the permanent behavioral changes which have happened. In the consumer's mind because of covid but as long as you do that and you are swift enough and agile enough to do that these are fantastic businesses and uh, you know you recently see silver lake investing in in, in airbnb right uh, at, at i think an 18 billion billion dollar valuation and and look at where it is right now so uh strong businesses and strong founders leaders will stay uh will be resilient vcs will uh, continue to back it because if you see the vc model there is no uh, option of giving the money back to the LPs, right? In a way that, okay, you know, this year has been bad. We're not deploying any capital from the fund. Let me return back the capital. It's not going to happen. The capital is all going to get stacked up and it's going to get deployed immediately at a higher speed uh, post-COVID. So, uh, you you know, in a way, I think it's going to be good for VCs as well because now they would also uh, would have reflected in terms of what kind of companies they want to invest in and what kind of businesses... Uh, newer businesses which probably they would want to invest in like for me example for me uh, you know at Gamba, we were looking at edtech very very you know uh closely since the last three years but we didn't make any edtech investments but now because of covid and the and the and the fundamental shift we feel that we should now make some couple of edtech uh bets and, and and you see the amount of money going into the edtech sector right now so so i think a lot of new things will happen a lot of uh the the, the speed at which new things are happening will happen will be uh, will be increased and you have to be right there in the moment to pick up the trends and and then kind of invest and the people who are going to do that at the forefront are always going to get lp money as well right? do back there i
0: fa- hope
1: i've answered your question yeah
0: no that's a fantastic perspective i really enjoyed that you spoke about it from a macro perspective and that's what i've been trying to understand a little more what does this year really taught us? And what does this year symbolize in terms of the trends within both Indian VC as well as global VC? And I personally feel that when you take a look at it from an Indian perspective, four sectors, you know, you mentioned um, education as well, but agri-tech, fintech, uh, healthcare, as well as education, these four have kind of like become the bedrock uh, of this year. And a lot of investment has gone into these four sectors Within India as well, and I want to understand if that's a sign of things to come in terms of, you know, once we go back into a post-COVID world. God knows when that's going to be, but if we do get back into that world, say in 2021, are these trends going to continue or new trends are going to emerge? And every day, that's kind of like something that I also have to do as my as part of my day job as a VC, right? So I'm trying to understand where are Indian VCs and what are they thinking about in terms of. The trends that are going to be coming for 2021, 2022, in terms of just a 24-month year a 24, uh, a month cycle, are you still going to double down on these four sectors? Are there any other sectors that you have seen emerge during the COVID times that you're really bullish about, especially thinking about it from a 24-month uh, perspective?
1: See, so it's absolutely difficult to, uh, you know, spot a trend early on uh, in terms of what's going to happen in the VC space in terms of investments um, in the next 24 year, or twenty-four months. Uh, it, it's always very, very difficult. But to give you a sense of what I feel and what we feel at Gamba Capital is, when you look at a market in India, right, uh, any particular space which you kind of put your finger to looks like a large space, right? But you have to peel certain layers to understand whether it's actually a large market or not, right? Like for example, a B2B enterprise tech and things like that, uh, uh, because a top-down approach does not work in India. You have to really go bottoms up when you are trying to find out the dam, and and it's basically uh, the dam which somewhere drives opportunities and VC investments, right? Because of the structure of VC fund is and uh, so from that a perspective, definitely the four spaces which you mentioned, uh, education, health. Agri and health are always going to be uh, something which which will be not just for the next 24 months, but probably for the next uh, you know five years or 10, or for next 10 days, 10 years, right? Because these are basic uh, core sectors. Like for example, let's say a, let's take a lower middle class uh, family in India, family of three. The moment they start getting some disposable income, where are they going to spend their money on? Better education, better health, right? Uh, uh, you know. Uh, they they are going to probably you know eat better they consume more so it, it's somewhere these three four sectors which are going to be the large drivers now within these you could have many many uh sub trends sub sectors white ocean areas where uh, founders will identify your gaps and opportunities and build businesses and each of them could build really large businesses right um, but uh this this would majority take a majority of your investments, which are happening in India, right? And besides this, I am very bullish on SaaS, which would not pro- which would uh, which would probably I see a lot of money VC money would start pouring in in that sector, in India, and a bit into uh, certain uh, deep tech companies as well. But uh, I think SaaS and domestic consumption. These would be the uh, the flavor for the next few couple of years for Indian, for Indian VC to invest in.
0: So within SaaS, are there specific verticals that you're looking into? your are bullish on because SaaS again is such a broad vertical, uh, such a broad space uh, in general. As we speak about it,
1: Correct. So uh, what we, I really believe is uh, the time has come where we you know an Indian company can build a fantastic product for a global market, right? Like you can sit, you can have a team right here in Chennai or Bangalore and, and serve global markets. Freshworks have shown us, Zoho has shown us, and many other companies are on the way, right? So, um, I think there is an inherent advantage which India has in terms of availability of skill. There is some amount of arbitrage as well, and the mindset now has moved to a product led nation, right? The way probably a couple of decades back when the PCS and the Infosys had made that move into the services segment. I think now uh, that the next decade will be on the product side, and uh, SaaS would be obviously at the forefront of it. So uh, that takes care of the macro piece, wherein you know there is an existing playbook available for founders. There are there is support structures There is there is SaaS Boomi. There is upeka There are, there are VCs who are investing and in supporting SaaS uh, founders. A lot of these founders have come out of Freshworks, uh, you know, or or, or Zoho or, or Capillary and these kind of companies and setting up their own uh, small startups, right? So I think a lot of action will happen. Now in terms of uh, space, um, India is still uh, probably a billion dollar market uh, in India, which is still a small market. So you have to look at international markets. Having said that SME SaaS uh, is is a new and emerging trend in India where you're looking at SaaS products for the SMEs of India, which have lower ACVs. But uh, if you get the distribution right and you get your partnerships right, probably that that can also be something which is very exciting because our adoption is increasing right uh in, 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 in indian enterprises as well as smbs for uh SaaS products so uh, i see a lot of macro things in place now uh within SaaS. would you want to pick up a vertical uh SaaS or, or 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 something which is more horizontal or, or a sas enabled marketplace there could be various things like right? but i personally would uh like initially you know, high velocity products you know which which can be sold uh, uh, through through inbound and things like that and then slowly build on top of it with a lot of third sort of party integration and kind of make get into an smb level product and then finally enterprise-grade product right uh, and also similarly look at first looking making the product for indian users uh, and then probably southeast asia once you're ready you can probably look at the us markets in some cases, when you have the ability and experience, you go US first, right? So, there are a lot of things happening. What what the bottom line is that there is, there, there is going to be, there are going to be many, many more uh, $100 million ARR SaaS companies out of India, I think, in the next decade from India.
0: It's a very interesting perspective, Adit. And I'm very curious to understand no. how you've built your entire portfolio till date, but a good way to start there would be to understand your background. So you've had a small stint in banking, then you founded your own company, and then you know, you've know you you've had this wonderful journey into, into VC as, as such. Could we talk about how it all started for you and how you entered VC and what was that motivation for you to get into investing? And then I'll probably try tie, tying all of that back into the story of you investing in your portfolio. So let's start with your background. If you can take us through your journey, that'd be fantastic.
1: Sure. Um, so, you know, I started off in 2005 uh, at ICICI Bank head office in Bombay. And uh, that was my, that was my uh, campus job. Uh, from the, I got placed from the campus and it was a fantastic learning experience. At that point of time, ICICI Bank was termed as a learning ground for a lot of freshers. And then eventually you would move to the city banks and, and the other MNC banks in India. So uh, luckily for me, uh, I was part of the international banking group. And within international banking group, there was an international products group as well. So I was part of the team which was responsible to come up with products to sell these products through our banks, through our ICSA bank customers internationally. So these would be typically HNIs and NRIs, right? And you would sell a multitude of products to them. Uh, and I was looking at alternative asset class. So uh, hedge funds, private equity funds and real estate funds. Uh, that was the first time why I, when I got exposed to what a private equity fund is all about. We uh, helped raise two funds, raise almost 400 million dollars through the ICSA banks network. And it was a great experience uh, to go along with the fund manager on roadshows to raise this fund You know, across many countries in, 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 and, and then kind of uh, train the relationship managers uh you know sell first what 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 india story is and what private equity is and then why such and such manager and things like that so that was a great experience Uh, i I was there for almost two years um, before then post that i happened to visit japan uh, as a part of a delegation to visit some small and large enterprises to understand best practices in japan Um, and that's where i came across creps now this is very surprising, but crepes, uh, which you would probably know are very popular in the U.S., IHOP and and, and you know uh, Europe, are actually popular in Japan as well. And uh, I loved it. And uh, I came back, and I just felt that I need to do something of my own. And that's the first time that entrepreneurship bug kind of bit me. And uh, I tried doing it along with ICSA. It was getting very difficult. I realized you can't, you know, have one leg in one boat and the other leg in the other boat. Uh, So I quit here, and I started a a company called Crepeteria, this was a QSR, a quick serve restaurant and I remember at that time a lot of people telling me that uh, you don't have hospitality background, you know, why are you doing this, Uh, but I just felt that it's not rocket science and we could do it. So I raised some seed capital uh, from an institutional called Keynote and, and Team India and we set up you know uh got in the chef got in, got in the entire menu and then we started off so that is where i got my hands dirty in an operating role and it caught me a lot so i ran that business for almost four years uh we franchised it out to pune Hentaban. in bombay we had multiple stores multiple formats like the kiosk format the cafe format we experimented a lot with the menu and uh i think that's where i get that empathy towards founders who are right now uh, running businesses whether it's tech or non-tech businesses, right? Um, So somewhere in uh, two, you know, uh, almost after running it for four years is, I realized that this is very, very operationally intensive, you know. and uh, Krebs per se as a hero product had never taken off. Right? So we were basically selling a lot of other products. Uh, And uh, then I realized at that time that this is not something, uh, you know, which we should continue. And that's where I sold it to one of my franchisees and moved on from private to uh, join a family office, which made uh, some investments in the unlisted space.
0: Uh, Adit, uh, if I can um, kind of pause yeah. you here for a minute. I'm very curious to understand what learnings you got from your time as a founder and how do you use that experience today when you're speaking to founders yourself? You know, in a way, you could probably also say that maybe... You are early to market. Um, maybe crabs had really not um, taken off as a, a food product back then. It probably is today. So, what did you learn from that experience as a founder? How did that really shape you then? And how is that experience coming in hand now when you're evaluating startups, when you're looking at, you know, like if you take an example of maybe an enterprise SaaS product or a consumer product? Absolutely.
1: See, uh, you know, there are. There are tons of learnings, right, uh, in running a QSR, it, uh, you know, restaurant business looks sexy from outside, but if you look at the mortality rate, uh, you know, it, it's one of the highest in, in any other industry, right. So uh, the learning for me was that, are you actually building a product which is scalable, right. And that's why I shy away from investing in services businesses, because I, I realize how difficult it is to, you know, kind of get more and more people on your roles and, and do that kind of a work, right. To manage that in in terms of uh, uh scalability so uh, that was one reason because you know we had like 50 60 employees and we were doing hardly some kind of not less than half a million dollars right so i realized that it, it was it was difficult so those are uh, that is one of the things secondly do you have the mindset to kind of do this kind of a business what we call this a, a founder market fit right and i can probably we can come back to that later on because that's a whole um, you know topic of discussion which in which we how we analyze whether this founder is right for this kind of a business. Um, so we 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 do that. Especially with my crevators experience, like crepes are not even popular right now to, you know, so as to say in India especially. Uh, and and I was trying to sell creps before the swigis of the world were even launched. So it so market timing becomes very, very critical, right? Uh, and that's the reason why sometimes even though we've looked at ar we are companies we feel it's not the right time right even some of these drones you know uh, companies so uh, those are the s- uh, small nuggets which we have distilled into our evaluation procedure uh, process wherein you know we look at these things and some of them have come up because of me personally experiencing that uh, while running area, right like how how diff- how operational intensive it's going to be do the you know i didn't have a co-founder like my wife helped me initially uh, but then now i remember i i know the importance of having a co founder so it becomes little difficult for me to kind of back someone who doesn't have a co founder right uh, so with the complementary skill sets so there are a lot of learnings i i would say and and all that has helped me in evaluating but more than evaluation i feel uh i have developed empathy because i've gone through that uh, and uh, and some places where i know it, Entrepreneur an internally optimistic person, you know. Even I was, but as an investor, I'm wearing a different hat. Uh, so I am able to kind of guide the founder also in a way better because of my experience and uh, knowing that what should be done, what should not be done, where you should focus, and what is the next steps you should do. So I think a culmination of that has kind of played a role in, in our strategy at deva Capital.
0: It's very interesting to uh, learn as well. I'm very Glad you shared that experience because uh, let me give you a personal example. This was way back in the uh, maybe 2008 to 2009 when uh, a, a friend of mine and I were sitting and talking about an online grocery sort of service, and you know we went around talking to people and trying to understand if this is something that people will want to even have at some point. And everybody laughed and ridiculed us and said, "Who's gonna buy groceries online? We want to touch and feel our vegetables, and that's how it's always been." So sometimes, you know, being even early to market can can probably be de- detrimental to you. And it also took Big Basket a long time to actually make it a common place uh, in the industry. And then came along Grofers and a bunch of other startups who are kind of like doing it right now. But it's a good point that you bring up, you know, being first to market or early to market, trying to understand if there's a product market fit for, and and trying to understand if people are even willing to spend one rupee. On uh, the product that you're trying to sell or product that you're trying to build. I think that's a very good experience that you've had, which can now be translated as a VC when you're t- speaking to startups. It doesn't matter if it's just consumer, but even on the enterprise front, I think you can, you know, really use and leverage that experience. So I'm glad you brought that up. So, uh, and I'll let you get back to your story. You know, you were talking to us about uh, your, your next int, which is the family office. Yeah. i'd love to understand how you came about with this family office and uh, how did you proceed from there to where you are right now
1: correct so um this was uh you know basically a company called plexus capital which was started by uh kunal kumtaker and he was earlier a gp in a, in a vc fund called 9 River capital and uh, he set this up and we had backing of a family in the u.s a couple of investments but uh, eventually you know what happened akash this this kind of morphed into an investment bank a boutique investment bank uh, fundraise was a bit difficult at that point of time and so i said okay let me just try my hand at investment banking as well and i did investment banking for a year uh, not many people know that but uh, uh you know following up with vc funds making the investment memos financial models so it got me kind of good understanding of you know how things operate and uh, but, but that was not my skill set, really, you know, I, I really kind of didn't enjoy that. And that's when I wanted to move on the buy side. And I, I joined uh Oswal private equity fund uh, in 2013. I, I had a long stint there from 2013 to almost 17, uh, more than four and a half years actually. And uh, that is where I would say the real learning and love for investing actually kind of uh, happened. Because uh, we were one of the classic growth capital, you know, private equity funds, uh, total across two funds had 250 to $60 million, uh, to deploy uh, on an average 13, 14 companies per, per fund. So when I joined, I got two companies from the first fund, um, to monitor, to manage and, uh, two new investments. So that's where I, uh, kind of saw the entire cycle of, you know, how a fund operates, right from sourcing to maintaining relationships, evaluations, and then, kind of, you know, post investment, a lot of, uh, you know, handholding holding, value adding, you know, uh, attending board meetings and things like that. So, a lot of best practices kind of uh, uh, built from there. And uh, I was there for almost, as I said, four and a half years. I've been involved in taking a company public. So, I completely understand the entire IPO process. And these were like some of them were large companies, like 2,000, 3,000 crore top line. And some of them were, uh, 100 to 400 crore top line, so I could really see the next phase of startups going to where they are now, right? Uh, and uh, that gave me a good understanding of how growth companies are managed and run, how systems and processes are important. What, how to look at it from a more uh, uh, financial perspective as well, right? Like the cash flows, the ROCEs, and you know where to deploy and what to do. So uh, I think all that helped me. Uh, kind of, you know, get a sense of how public market investing is happening or how large or late stage VC probably look at investments, right? And then from there, in 2017, end is when I started Gemba Capital.
0: I love that journey. So you've been in a family office. You've been an angel. You've, you know, now you've run angel syndicates, and now you're trying to launch a VC fund as well with Gemba. Talk to us about that whole transition. How has each experience taught you? so talk to us about the progression and the evolution that you've had sure. personally on an investment front
1: so you know when i was working in a pe fund i asked myself that do i see myself doing this 10 years down the line right and the answer was not a clear-cut yes Akash, because you know i would see uh things changing around me in terms of tech and startups right and that's much more exciting right like otherwise i would continue to kind of invest Larger and larger amount in larger and larger companies, and honestly, you can't play a role in the direction in which these companies are going to take. You know, your value add is limited, right? Uh, even if you are on the board. So I just felt that my experience would really help early stage founders, and uh, and that's where I would my value add would be maximum, and I could probably play some role in the direction which the company takes. So and and you look around, right? Around us, what's happening in India? The next wave of you know companies which are getting built even globally you know the market caps of tech companies at the max are are the highest right so i wanted to really move to a a more tech investing space right and that's where i left that private equity job and started gemba capital um so when i started gemba capital i got the backing of one of my partners who who, you know whose money we started investing and honestly it was damn tough akash i will tell you it was like i had to unlearn so many things you know in, in a private equity fund uh, you know a lot of the deal flow is coming from intermediaries and bankers your access to deals and getting deals is the most critical you know thing when you're talking about early stages seed and angel uh, when i was in a fund i was the first thing you would ask is last 10 years annual reports right and here it is not even last 2 years annual report when you look at funds or uh, when you look at companies the quality of founders are very different They're already talking to achievers people who have their personal networks of 100 200 crores right uh, and, and the money is required for, uh, let's say, expansion and things like that. Whereas here you're talking about product market fit, whether you're talking about the founder's ability to whether will execute or not execute. So a lot of things were different. But because I've seen that, uh, I think I was able to put two and two together and uh, use an initial three months, four months just to kind of meet maximum number of people and you know, understand that what are the things which will work here, right? Um, luckily for me, I never invest. I was never like an angel investor. It was always Gemba Capital. Even though we cut kind of small checks initially, because we wanted to build uh, our relationships in the ecosystem, right? whether accelerators, incubators, angel investors, VC funds. Uh, we wanted to see a lot of companies to build our own investment thesis in terms of what what props are bought and what we like and what we don't like and what are the trends, right? So a lot of sector mapping analysis, a lot of those things were done. Till the time we started getting, you know, into good deals and started refining our investment thesis, and then we started deploying capital. Once we started deploying capital, we got a lot of requests from co-invest, from people that you know even we want to deploy along with you. Why don't you put my small money as well? And that's where we then we started a syndicate, you know, uh, uh, your back. We got fantastic response on the syndicate. We did some great deals along with market co-investors, VC funds. Uh, a lot of our companies did up rounds. So all these things started shaping well. And then we realized that we've done, doing some things right, right? You know, Gemba Capital has a very strong brand reputation. A lot of founders are talking good about us because we really genuinely added value to all the portfolio companies where we've invested in, no matter how small an investor we are. So all this has now culminated in us taking that step that let's set up a micro VC fund, And that's where we are at this point. Of time.
0: So. You spoke about building sector thesis. You spoke about trying to build relationships in the industry with accelerators, other VC firms, people who have been sourcing deals. How long did it take you from the relationship building phase and building your own thesis phase to going out and deploying your first check? What kind of research and learnings did you have to personally undergo before you cut the first check?
1: see the way I look at it is uh, it's a different asset class right so it's definitely not a substitute for your debt investments or a public market equity investment it in fact is a diversification tool and you need to know what come what are you comfortable with in terms of overall your network and what allocation you want to give to let's say startup investing right Uh, some people who've been in this ecosystem probably will have a higher allocation some people will have a lower allocation once you decide if this is the number, uh, this is the amount I'm, I want to invest in startups over the next two, three years or four years, then your next step would be that, okay, how many deals I need to do? It's a function of wa- what is your personal investment style? Are uh, you going to get involved? Uh, what is your deal sourcing capability? And uh, what kind of a portfolio you want to build? Some people who want to build a portfolio of 75 companies. Some people are happy with building a portfolio of 20 companies so then you divide that and then you come up with okay this is the amount i'm going to put in each and every angel check or check right which is as low well as let's say five thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars or whatever right so that's how you kind of think about it it's, it's more of a portfolio building uh approach which you need to do uh even for your own personal investments otherwise it becomes a very ad hoc investments and you'll end up burning your fingers right because uh, then there's no method to this madness then anyone who comes up with a very good deal, and then you, you you feel the deal is good, you 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 fall for all the other signaling effects without doing your own research or having any conviction, you just put in some money. It's as good as playing uh, playing uh, gambling, right? So uh, I think either you don't do it yourself and do it through a micro VC manager like us or, or a VC fund, but if you are doing it yourself, uh, make sure that you have the right approach to do these things, right? you are from a particular sector and you know that sector inside out, you probably allocate 40-50% of your funds in startups in those in that particular sector and then the remaining in some other sectors, right? Uh, and that too, then you look at who the co-investors are if you want to, right? But you you need to kind of be sure and, and there is no right answer to when should you start cutting your first check because unless you do it, you're never going to learn you have to make sure that your first couple of checks will be just a amount you pay to learn angel investing probably you know it might work it might not if you're a beginner's luck it might work or it might just not work but only when you start putting your own real money you will start putting in the efforts to understand the company understand the business model talk to more people take some reference checks and things like that i think that's how you should probably look about it uh look about uh, kind of doing such things Because you are not part of the ecosystem if you are an angel investor sitting outside and as a part-time investor, right, and you're doing something else, you don't know which models, uh, whether this company has been rejected by all the tier one VCs and it's coming to you, whether is there any other team, which is a much stronger team working on the same product and and similar space, and you are not probably funding them and you're funding uh, the, the other one. So because you are not aware about so many things, I would still feel that you should very cautiously look at it. And only do some deals where you have strong referrals or you, or you trust that syndicate lead a lot, or you like what you see, or you understand the space and then you can't start cutting your own checks. I hope I've um, kind of answered some part of the question.
0: Absolutely. That's fantastic advice for anybody who's trying to understand when should they get into investing themselves. Now, from your personal perspective, when you started looking at startups from uh, a gamba lens, what are some of the things that you look for? What is your investment thesis? How did you get to that thesis? And how is that going to evolve? Do you have a sense of what is that thesis going to look like maybe a year down the line? And we touched upon this a little previously as well. And you mentioned it's going to be difficult to, to sense what the future is, but there are trends that point us in the right direction. But talk to us about the current thesis that you have and how do you personally see this evolving into something bigger than what it is right now?
1: Yes. So see, uh, the stage at which we invest in, uh, we either, you know, you put the founder first or you put the market first and it's a perennial debate about who comes first of the founder or the market when you're evaluating, but let's for, 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 for the sake, for me, uh, we also do some seed rounds, which is like, you know, a, a pre-product, pre-MVP kind of, uh, transactions. And that's where you really just bet betting on the jockey, right? Uh, and um, so we we put founders first in our evaluation. We have an internal framework called uh, founder market fit, which has three param- four parameters actually, where we are talking where we when we talk to founders, we try to kind of you know evaluate founders on these parameters to understand whether are these founders the right founders for this type of business. These could be emotional parameters. Uh, this could be your execution capabilities or leadership capabilities. And, and, you know, uh, uh, domain expertise and a lot of other things, you know, I've written a blog on it and I want all the deep, uh, listeners to go and check that blog on my website to get a more detailed view on that. But once we've got to the founder uh, evaluation, then we look at the market, you know, is it a large market, is it a growing market? Because that's the key for, uh, you know, uh, for a VC to kind of come in uh, unless it's not, it's not a large market and what's the competitive scenario in that market, what's the landscape like? So, uh, you know, we typically look at a lot of things on, on the market size uh, and perspective. And then comes the mode, Whether, you know, is there any defensibility, is there any, you know, on the product side, is there a strong learning curve for others to catch up on and things like that. Uh, is there any IP in the business? And once these three things are more or less done, then is when we look at the traction, validation, the velocity of growth and, and then we look at finally finally the price because for us at the stage at which we are entering price is the least of our uh, uh you know uh, concerns because we don't mind paying a premium but we do mind uh, having a, a great company as our active portfolio right uh, and, I'll, and i'll explain to you probably later on why uh in hindsight you know great companies always Look expensive at every stage at which they are kind of uh, investing in. Um, So, so this is the broad framework. Now, within this framework, we have a lot of things which we kind of ask the founders or ask ourselves when we're evaluating. Can this be a billion dollar outcome? Does it have a natural network effect? Can it have some kind of a a monopoly flavor to the business which can give non linear outcomes for us? Uh, You know, can it? can get into adjacent markets. Uh, is the market is will the company be able to take a larger market share of a small micro market first and then replicate it? And like I can go on one probably in another podcast to answer that uh, question of how do we evaluate companies. But I, I hope you've got the drip in terms so of broadly how we value it.
0: Absolutely you know, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, all of this kind of gives me an impression as well of how Gemba Capital's been thinking about deploying its funds and you know it's a, it's a good segue into the next segment where i want to discuss about your next steps you know we spoke about your journey uh, uh, you know as, as somebody who started off in family office went into you had a stint in private equity and now you're trying to launch this bigger fund to deploy in the indian startup uh, ecosystem and one thing that you and i discussed uh, before we jumped on the call is that you're trying to raise money from domestic lps that's a very interesting um proposition because i've been speaking to a lot of vcs in the indian ecosystem and one of the things that a lot of people are telling me is that they're very consciously you know trying to raise money from within the country talk to me about why was that a conscious decision for you as well why are you focused on raising money from domestic lps rather than kind of keeping an open mind about raising it from uh, anybody from anywhere around the world. That could also be an approach for you as well, but you did mention that the majority of the funds will be raised from domestic uh, domestic investors. That is very interesting. Talk to us about what brought about that change. And I'm really keen to understand what is bringing this shift within the Indian VC ecosystem where now VCs are thinking about raising money from local investors
1: so uh, so i don't think so that's a shift which is happening the larger vcs will still continue to raise a lot of money from offshore investors uh they have offshore vehicles and a lot of these pension funds and institutional investors who are who have allocations for this asset class uh uh you know are based out of india so um, for large vc uh it makes sense to kind of look at uh you know foreign investors but for a vc like me who is In in a way, technically speaking, although I have like 15 years of entrepreneurship as well as investing experience, but technically I am still uh, bracketed as a first time fund manager, right? Because it's my first licensed fund which I am going to pick up, right? So a lot of institutions do not want to back, uh, and that's a sad truth, right? A lot of institutions do not want to back a first time fund manager. They do not want to back a small fund. And that's why uh, institutions are out from my uh, target list of LPs, right? And when I'm looking at then the HNI's or the ultra HNI or small family offices, my per se relationships are in India, right? And for a small fund which I'm setting up, uh, I have enough appetite to kind of raise this money domestically, which gives me a lot of flexibility to move fast and close the fund faster and with minimal compliance and regulatory issues, right? Otherwise, I need to get into this U.S. investor, uh, you know, uh, regulations and reporting regulations, compliances. Set up another fund abroad look at how i can take dollar money in and a lot of other things right so all this is something not uh all this is not something which i'm not is there a strategy behind not doing it it's just a matter of uh uh that is it required right my second fund which would uh, be a larger fund i'm definitely going to look at international investors right? because they just not bring money but they bring a different perspective as well but uh for a smaller fund i feel think it is much more of essence for me to do the fundraise fast, close it, and start deploying the capital within my circle of network, which is right now is predominantly
0: in India. It's very interesting again. And uh, you didn't mention that this is not a trend that you have personally observed yourself, especially given that there are VCs around you who have been raising money from domestic uh, LPs as well. What are the challenges in your opinion about raising money from domestic LPs? I don't know if you've already started fundraising, and if you haven't, um, you know, I'd love to understand what have you heard from other people who have raised domestically and if you've already started raising capital from domestic investors, talk to us about some of the questions and concerns that they've had and uh, what what are they trying to understand about this new asset class?
1: See, the challenges are the same everywhere, whether it is domestic or uh, VC raising a fund in the, in the valley. Uh, the only difference is the maturity of the ecosystem, uh, the VC ecosystem in the valley is probably a couple of decades or, or like more than four or five decades old. But in India, it's still pretty new. So You have to make, make them understand what this asset class is all about. For them to get a grip that there could be probably no liquidity and it, it's a seven year term and, and things like that, it's difficult to kind of explain. And in India, which is, with you know, with, with the public markets are given some fantastic returns it becomes even more difficult to sell to uh, in terms of their return expectations right um, and plus the structure of the, of the of the carry and the management fee so those are the standard questions which we come across but what is more important is that uh, they are open to listening because all of them have seen what has happened in the startup ecosystem with, with big baskets and, and ola and flipkart of the world so they want to invest and that's why they are they are they're willing to hear. It's up to us as, as fund managers to, to make them understand what this asset class is all about, what they are getting into, and why we right. Like for example, since we started investing three years back, and, and that too, as I said, you know, most of the investments have been done in the last two years. Average holding of my portfolio is one and a half years. I am not going to get exits in one and a half years, right? Uh, so those are the questions: that Why don't you have an exit? Why haven't you returned money? Which we need to explain that the share which we are investing, what has happened. But see, there are up which have happened. This is how we value it, and this is how we slowly going to get exits and things like that. And how a portfolio approach will reduce your risk. It's not as risky as you think it is, right? Like we need to go 24 times wrong if you are making a portfolio of credit for investments to not give you your capital back, right? So, uh, so those perceived notions of high, of, of very very high risk, and expect huge expectations of returns, and these are challenges which is more uh, uh, our job as people in the ecosystem to explain to potential lps because that's when the entire ecosystem will grow like more and more managers need to come up set up micro vc funds more money should go into startups which is more value adding money smart money through institutions and i honestly tell people not to kind of uh, sometimes avoid doing personal investments and you know, it's like if you're not in the ecosystem, you will invest your uh, through a PMS or through a mutual fund. Right? You will not invest directly. Uh, same goes for the understood space as well. Why not do it for a manager? Why do you want to do it directly? You think you know things, but you probably end up burning up. You know?
0: That's a good point that you made. And you, since we're talking about your investments, and um, I'd love for you to take a, a use case and talk to us about how do you make investments at Kemba? What are some of the things that you look at? How is that value what's the value that you've been adding
1: you know so one thing i realized from day one is the ecosystem in india is not very very large so per se uh, you know if you're doing good the world will spread and vice versa if you're doing bad the world will spread right so uh, we've been very conscious about it and we've uh, thankfully added a lot of value in most of our portfolio companies and that's where our the founders when when new invest founders are doing a ref check about us they speak to some of our portfolio companies, right? And that's where we get access to good deals. That's how we get reference. And that's the flywheel which keeps running, right? And the more we do it, the better and better deals we start getting into it. So this was a conscious effort from day one to genuinely add value. People just talk about it. Now, how have we done that is because of my experience, you know, somewhere we've helped companies getting more customers. So before we even our check goes and we've introduced them to customers. In certain cases, and that's the best you could do for a in certain cases, we'll help people, uh, some, of our funds, uh, some of our companies in hiring, right? Uh, in certain cases, market intelligence. And by hiring, I say not just kind of giving them candidates, but also just generally spreading the word if they're looking for someone, right? On my LinkedIn, my uh, Twitter, and my WhatsApp groups and things like that. Uh, so we've done that. Uh, we've also helped companies in their next round of fundraising. And that's where I feel we play a very, very critical role. Right from making the presentations to kind of uh, doing mock sessions with them for the pitch sessions to connecting them to partners of VCs, right? Like, normally it would take time for you to reach out from an analyst to an associate and then reach out to a partner. But because it's a portfolio company of Canva, we could directly connect them with with VCs uh, and partners at VCs, right? And they do look at the deal because it comes to us. So, all these things we've been doing. Uh, I, I remember one of our deals where we connected them to almost 60 funds right uh in a phased manner uh, and in one company we were not the lead investor uh and for some reason the lead investor backed out and the entire transaction was going to not going to happen but we stepped in the shoes of the lead investor and took the lead despite being one of the smallest checks in the round and we did the entire diligence the entire transaction closure the and there was a business transfer agreement to be done there was a lot to be done and we took the owners because we believe in the founders. We had high conviction, and we supported them at, at, in, 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 in that time. And the round kind of closed, right? Finally, so we've we've always stepped up for our founders. Uh, you know, you would be surprised that in some of the companies we hold less than one percent stake, but yet we are. Uh, uh, and they've kind of these companies have raised more than ten million dollars sometimes, and yet we are talking to them about what's the next strategy, which investor is going to talk to, can we connect you with someone? So, I, I think there's a whole lot of list of things which we have done uh, in certain cases where we feel the lead investor has kind of, uh, there's a next on which has happened, we've stepped down a bit, you know, in terms of our involvement with in the company, because that's how he will be able to manage the lead team, otherwise it's going to be impossible for us to manage. We already have 20 plus companies. So a uh, lot of these things and, and bits and pieces on the processes, on consultants, on, on some best practices. Uh, we keep on kind of talking to our founders on that. So and I think that's, that's kind of, uh, helped us in, in, in building our, uh, uh, you know, persona of what Gemba capital is in the
0: ecosystem. Now, in terms of the value creation, you talked about how you're helping startups raise money. You're helping them think through some of the challenges. You also spoke about, uh, hiring. How do you manage the time with select portfolio companies now is this something that you have kind of decided that okay our first six months after investing in this company will be super hands-on with them and we will help them as much as possible and after that we kind of take a back seat do you have like a structured process that you put in place or is it very ad hoc you know as when you have challenges you speak to them you have a regular cadence with these founders and then you get into this uh, cycle of helping them as much as possible because you have a personal rapport with them. How do you as a VC structure these conversations with founders and how do you set expectations, especially for founders who you've added a lot of value in the first few months of investing and then you because you also mentioned that sometimes you only have less than a less than a percentage stake in the company, how do you ensure that you're not offering more than you're getting in return?
1: Yeah, so this is a question, this is something which I keep grappling with because sometimes I really do feel that, you know, sh- do I need to put in also so much efforts, right, uh, in, in, a, in a company. Uh, the way we do it is, we, we do it all hard. There is uh, there is not a standard process, but the thought here is we would want to get involved to the extent the founder wants us to get involved. So in certain cases where we get indications that, you know, uh, this, listen, there, there are many, many large investors on the cap table you are just one of the small investors, you know, we'll just send you the monthly MIS and that's about it. We are okay with that, right? Because there we are trusting the, 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 the founders, the board and then everyone kind of, you know, do what they're supposed to do. And only if we find something glaringly or uh, we want to discuss something on the MIS is when kind of all of the founders. So there are some companies like that. There would be some companies where we would know that this is not going in the right direction we need to talk every week we need to talk to the founders uh, they are good guys but they need constant kind of validation constant we need to know what they are doing that's where we kind of get ourselves involved more and then there are majority of the companies who are in the middle of these two companies wherein it's more uh, on a on as you said as an on an ad hoc basis where the founder wants to know something or or need some help and, and they just reaches out to me on my phone or on, on whatsapp and then we help them out so this is how we kind of try to manage this time uh, uh our time because that's the only limited thing which we have right uh, so so this is this is something which we kind of figured it out that at any point of time it's going to be difficult to manage more than 50-20 companies so as and when our companies start getting up rounds our involvement keeps getting reduced uh, reducing and and we keep adding more value in the newer investments which we have done because maximum value gets added in the first
0: three to four months, as you rightly said, and then it kind of slows down. So today, how much would you say is your time split between portfolio support, deal sourcing and building relationships with other people within the industry, as well as fundraising? Very, how? What's the split? Especially, I mean, this is very interesting for some of our listeners who are thinking about getting into uh, we see themselves or you know people thinking about launching funds themselves how much time should they be spending what is the ideal kind of breakdown in your perspective what have you learned in the process uh, over the years of experience that you've had in terms of investing so speak speaking from a experience perspective and where you are today how much did time did you spend in the past and how much time are you today spending to just give people a glimpse of what it takes to be a good investor
1: so uh i'll tell you uh i there are two answers to it one is when you are fundraising and second is when you are not fundraising so let me tell you uh, the first one when you are fundraising which is what i am right now 50 percent of my time is going in fundraising, okay clearly uh, and the remaining 50 is divided equally between portfolio management portfolio monitoring and doing new deals and deal sourcing and investing right so that's the split of 50 20 by 25 25 now let's say uh, once my fund is closed and uh, we are not actively fundraising and we're only in the deployment phase right there almost 35 percent of my time would go into uh, portfolio monitoring 35 percent of time will go into actually doing the transaction doing deals uh, and you know uh, kind, kind of in in, in live transactions and the rest would actually go into building thesis, building relationships, talking to people, meeting people, networking, uh, you know writing blogs. So that's how the split then happens uh, when you're not fundraising And I think this is just a very rough estimates, but I, I see that's what has happened to me in the past and that's what is happening right now.
0: Very interesting. And um, you know I've, I've kind of like tried to understand how people, how vcs kind of like split their time as well. And uh, it's it's very interesting to know from your perspective as well, how you've been spending some time, especially doing fundraising and and otherwise. Now, I want to ask one more question before we kind of like end uh, and, and, and enter the last segment. Now, what happens if you end up meeting, say two different founders in the same space, trying to build very similar products, but there are two different personalities and both kind of have sort of uh, good traction, good business models, How do you evaluate from a you obviously can't put money in both right you can obviously Mm -hmm. only pick one of those and i mean this might be a very hypothetical situation might not have really happened to you uh, as such but say such an instance happens and you come across two very similar companies but founders cut from two different cloths, but equally competent great experience themselves but come from a very different sort of um school of leadership how do you evaluate deals from that perspective? What do you do personally? Do you go with your gut feeling or do you try and spend some more time and understand who's kind of like a better match? Uh, how does that kind of like play out?
1: Yeah, so um, what we're looking at is what are the key drivers to make this business a success, right? And let's say you list down three to four such drivers. Uh, let's say if it's a marketplace you know you look at okay you know whether, whether can you have lock in the supply or can you have uh you know a demand generator can you build in network effect or whatever so you have like these two three four drivers for that business to become successful and that is common for both these two founders right uh, because the businesses are similar once you've listed down that then we kind of probe in that direction to both the founders and we'll figure it out who's giving a much better answer in terms of what their vision is for these drivers how are they going to execute it and whether uh is that the right way to execute it now we will probably would not have answer we will also make a mistake uh we don't have all the answers but whatever uh at that point of time we feel is the founder who has much more clarity to kind of execute it is someone who we will go after right uh and i'm assuming keeping all other things Similar in terms of the basics, the hygiene, the ethics, and all right. those things, the different checks, then you actually then look at the, the the long-term vision of these of the founders, right? Right. I think somewhere that that comes uh, comes into play. Although I don't really believe that long-term vision comes at play initially, in the initial one year, two years where we come in, it's more about the synergies, the executions, the ability to recruit and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but later on for a sustainable uh kind of a business to become a large business uh that leadership and emotional maturity and those things start coming into play more importantly right uh, that's what the probably the series B, C, B, C would look at right
0: so fair enough kind of these problem. are valid points for sure yeah I'm, I'm i completely agree with you on uh the points that you made how much time do you end up usually spending with uh your companies especially when you're doing diligence on them
1: so uh, it differs honestly uh, because there are some companies where we have to take fast calls and that's the nature of the game right uh, we have to be swift and very very uh, move very fast because these are very competitive deals and uh, because we're not doing the entire round we have an allocation because of the check size uh, we have to take fast calls so in, so we have in the past taken decisions in like two weeks time right that's the least amount of time we spend uh, but we've taken decisions in two weeks time as well which is probably four or five calls with the founder now what are those kind of decisions typically those are decisions where we understand the space already right and that enables us to take a fast decision because we already understand and we've worked on the sector what we are looking for out is just what kind of product are you building and how are you going to execute it right uh, and the founder background is every is there for everyone to see so if there is high quality founder in a space which we understand the decision can be as fast as a week two weeks time right uh, on the other hand, there would be some founders where we are building along with them the thesis. We're building that what should be done, what should not be done. We're doing doing out some small experiments. We're talking to them. We are helping them getting him the co-founder, the first recruit, seeing the fireframes, the first the first build up, the first campaign, and then we take a call whether we want to invest or not. So there is no really an answer, but. Uh, we, we spend time till the time we get conviction. I think that's that's the way
0: we look at it. That's fantastic, Adit. Now, these are um, some really good insights to understand how you've been investing personally and kind of draws uh, a lot of parallels to some of the VCs that I've, all, I've spoken to as well. I want to head into my last segment now, which is rapid fire, to get to know a little more about wh- who you are as an investor and digging a little more into the investor persona. Uh, in this segment. So I'll start off with this first question. What within Indian venture capital would you like to see change in the next five years?
1: This is not a rapid fire question for sure, but uh, I really would want uh, investors to back funds and fund managers and make this much more a professional uh, ecosystem rather than trying to do it themselves and uh, and burn their fingers and then getting out of the ecosystem that is one i want a lot of esops to get liquidated uh, that that entire process needs to be more transparent more money should come back in the ecosystem which is held up uh, in a lot of vested and unvested esops uh, i don't want a billion dollar fund to do a one million dollar check for sure so these are the few things is in my wish list if you ask me
0: well, it's fantastic this is something that uh i think is is need of the hour and you you rightly pointed it out as well especially within in, in indian vc we need all of these changes to come about so i guess that's a good uh segment of the second question which is what is the toughest thing about being a vc i
1: think the feedback loops are very very long and that's the toughest thing to do you don't know whether what you, the decision you've taken is right or wrong uh for probably three years after you made the decision right? right you get a sense of it but you still are not sure about it so uh, it's a very very long term game you know your your first fund your second fund your exits uh, very long feedback loops
0: that's a good answer now if you were advising yourself 10 years ago before embarking on this journey as an investor what kind of advice would you be giving yourself
1: hmm I think, uh, I would want, I would have, I would have liked to start making investments early on small, uh, angel checks or kind of reading more about the space. Uh, I think more reading, uh, more, more understanding of the, of the space had i been starting 10 years back so that I don't make end up making the same mistakes, which what others would have done, uh, kind of see the playbook, see the, see what works, what not works, and then jump into
0: it. Now, I guess the last question to you would be, what is your advice to startups who are fundraising at this point? It's a very difficult period. Uh, but at the same time, as we discussed, there is capital available, but VCs are being extremely cautious with where and how they spend their money. What kind of advice would you like to give founders in India listening to you right now? So
1: I feel the most important, you know, entity in the most important entity in your, in your business is the customer, right? So as long as you have a single minded focus on giving customer delight, right? And you are taking those feedbacks from the customer and improving, I think you should just continue to do that. VCs would come, uh, and I'm sure your deals will become even more competitive because you would have fantastic metrics to show and you will have a lot of customer love to show, right? We've seen in the past how companies who single-handedly, single-mindedly single focus on customer service and, and customer satisfaction with high NPS have attracted capital, right? Uh, Amazon is a good example. Uh, Postman from India was a good example. So I think just continue building it for your customers. And uh, I think things will fall in place eventually. Yeah. And then we can obviously get into another conversation, whether is it right to listen to every customer and what to prioritize, (laughs) what not to prioritize. Can you get defocused by listening to doing whatever the customer says? So uh, that's a separate discussion altogether.
0: No, this has been fantastic, Adi. Thank you so much for all the insights that you provided on the episode so far. It really gives me personally an understanding of how Gamba Capital operates, how you as an investor kind of evolved from the time you're in, in banking to PE to family offices now with the fund itself. Uh, and I'm really excited about what the next chapter holds for you and Gamba Capital. And I'm cheering from the outside, trying to, you know, help in any way possible and trying to make sure that uh you as a fund have all the success possible. So I'm really excited about what's in store for you. Thank you so
1: much. Thank you so much. It was lovely talking to you. I had a great time.
0: That brings us to the end of this wonderful episode. Thank you so much, Adit, for taking time out and being here for the show with me today and sharing your insights on what it means to build a fund from the ground up and your insights on the venture capital landscape in India. If you're like me and enjoyed that episode, please go ahead and rate and subscribe to our podcast as it truly really helps others discover the show as well. As previously mentioned, we have one more guest lined up for the year before we call it a show on What's Been An eventful 2020. So make sure you tune back in. And until then, stay safe and continue to keep hustling, guys.